Well, we're going to be looking at the power of God today. If you would like to, I invite you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 13. 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 14 to 21. Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness uh, which he he was to die, King Joash of Israel went down to him and he wept before him crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow. And he drew it. Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And then he said, The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram. For you shall fight the... Uh, Arminians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. He continued, take the arrows, and he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. He struck three times, and he stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him, and he said, you should have struck five or six times, then you would have struck down Aram until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Aram only three times. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now bands of of Moabites used to uh, invade the land in the spring of the year. As a man was being buried, a marauding band uh, was seen, and the man was, was thrown into the grave of Elisha. As soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he came to life. And stood on his feet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, to open the service this morning, I read to you uh, a story from the New Testament. Lazarus. How many times in the Bible has someone been raised from the dead. Anybody have a solid number for me? Nine times. Nine times in the Bible, somebody's raised from the dead. Now, now there's a difference between, and I really want to drive home this, this point this morning, there's a difference between resurrection and resuscitation. Or, or the reanimation of someone. Resurrection refers to, to putting on a new glorified body, while reanimation or resuscitation means raising the person in the old, the old mortal body in which they died. I'm not sure if you ever made that connection or made that distinction. I want to run through for you these nine people being raised from the dead. First one is Elijah. Well, not. Elijah brought back to life the son of a widow. 
And we find that in 1 Kings 17, 22. Elisha, it's really hard to distinguish between those two, Elijah and Elisha. Uh, Elijah, the prophet, brought a child back from the dead. And that is in 2 Kings 4, verses 32 to 35. Then we have our passage, which I just read to you, uh, from 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Uh, Elisha's body... Or better yet, the words, Elisha's bones brought somebody back to life. And I tell you, it was like winning the lottery. And everybody laughs. No, no. (laughs) There's New Testament examples. One of them being Lazarus, which I read opening the service this morning. And that's from John 11, 41 to 44. Next one, uh, I don't know if you know him. I don't know if you ever heard of him, but uh, Jarius, Jarius' daughter was brought back to life in Luke chapter 8, verses 52 to 55. Uh, another one, uh, the child of the widow of Nain, Luke chapter 7, verses 14 to 15. Another New Testament one, uh, I like the name Tabitha, Uh, But you also might know this person by Dorcas. Uh, And Peter was involved with this one. Uh, Tabitha was raised from the dead in Acts chapter 9, verses 40 and 41. The next one has a cool name, and it's the last one I have to tell you about. Uh, Eutychus. And I'm just, that's that's my name for him. Uh, That's how I'm pronouncing it. Eutychus, book of Acts chapter 20, 9 to 11. Uh, Eutychus was, was brought back from the dead. These Old and New Testament examples of, of God reviving the dead show us that, that he has the capability as well as the desire to restore life. However, as I said, all of those were revived they eventually died again. Their the restoration is not the same thing as the promised resurrection. The Bible gives, gives uh, several specific examples of people who were resuscitated, and I just went through them with you, or reanimated back to life. Each of these people were, were brought back to life, and they, they had to die again. This is not the same thing as the biblical hope of resurrection. When believers are are raised from the dead, they will receive a new glorified body. And this new glorified body will never perish. Jesus, the only one who's been resurrected. The only one so far who has received the glorified body. Do we really believe that God worked in such a way that he brought these people back to life? I mean, really? This just doesn't happen in in the here and now, does it? Does it happen here and now? Are people raised back to life only to have to die again? I think my math was off. Eight times in the Bible, somebody's resuscitated. 
brought back to life to have to die again. And then there's one resurrection, that's Jesus. Just wanted to clarify that. And yet I think we still struggle. We still struggle with the fact that God is actively working in the here and now. God is actively working in each and every one of our lives and intervening and and in different ways. It has to do with, with culture. I have a story for you this morning. Author Ann Bachman left her fundamentalist Christian church in her 20s. She recently spent a full year, a full year investigating and experimenting with numerous forms of, of popular New Age spirituality. From yoga to witchcraft to magic mushrooms to death cafes. And I have no clue what those latter two are. Bakma recalls the time in her early 30s when she prayed really hard. She was eight months pregnant and in the hospital experiencing premature labor pains. A nurse waved the ultrasound wand over her belly and after many minutes of trying, could not detect the baby's heartbeat. A doctor was called and, and Bakma and her husband started to panic the doctor could also not find the heartbeat. Bakma immediately began bargaining, begging, and beseeching God. She didn't really believe in a supernatural entity who, who personally intervenes. But this did not stop her from crying out for mercy in the hour of her need. Bakma tells the rest of her story showing that her prayer was never really sincere. When all hope seems lost, praying means you're at least doing something. After searching in vain for another couple of minutes, the doctor picked up the cord attached to the ultrasound machine and dangled it in front of our eyes. It hadn't been plugged in. Our baby was alive, though not because of divine intervention. This made me think about what Mark Twain must have meant when he said, under the circumstances, swearing seems more apt than prayer. Some might have called this incident a miracle. We called her Ruby. Here's an individual who very clearly grew up in the church. She left her church in her 20s. She went experiencing different spiritualities or whatever the next best thing was. But at the heart of it, I think Anne, her name's Anne, I think she got caught up in some things. The very things that we get caught up in. I want to share them with you this morning. Does everybody know what tyranny is? Do you know what a tyrant is? Many might call it might be worse than this, but many might call Adolf Hitler a tyrant or King George a tyrant. Well, I got, I got two tyrannies to share with you all this morning. First one is the tyranny of convenience. The tyranny of convenience. Law professor and technology expert Tim Liu claims that there's an underestimated force that drives our daily lives. 
convenience. We want nearly everything about our lives to be convenient, efficient, easy. We cause convenience the most powerful force shaping our individual lives and economies. He goes on further. As, as Evan Williams, a co-founder of Twitter, recently put it, convenience decides everything. Convenience seems to make our decisions for us, trumping what we like to imagine are our true preferences. Of course, there are benefits to some of life's conveniences. But he also warns that there can be a dark side. With its promise of smooth, effortless efficiency, it threatens to erase the sort of struggles and challenges that help give meaning to life. Created to free us, it can become a constraint on what we're willing to do. And thus, in a subtle way, it enslaves us. When we let convenience decide everything, we surrender too much. So that's the first tyranny. Second tyranny is the tyranny of the self. There can be no real happiness in the heart where self is enthroned. If you would have peace, you must seize, bind, and never again let loose. For self is the cruelest tyrant, the deepest shadow and the blackest blot that it darkens a life. To be rid of the, the despot, you, you must begin by placing others first in all of your thoughts and actions. At this, the coward drops his head. The coward drops his head. He hates another to be first. Next, give him no thought or consideration at all. And though at this neglect, he cry out piously, heed him not, for, for now is the time to bind him hard and fast with, with the cords of forgetfulness. Then cast him far behind and be careful to allow neither the call of pain nor pleasure to entice you into loosening one jot or title of its bonds. Or once set free, the monster will rise again. Hydra-headed and towering above all else, and fold and crush you within his clutches until you are no more free but a slave, bound hand and foot in the deadly meshes of overmastering self. Jane Austen said this, Selfishness must always be forgiven, you know, because there's no hope for a cure. I'm convinced from an intimate and alarming self-knowledge to a lifetime of experiences with my fellow human beings that Austin hits close to the mark, the mark of sin and that which darkens its core, the tyranny of self. Shortly into my life journey, somewhere around the first sharp curve into adolescence, the teenage years, and with it, an exhilaration of, of increasing self-determination, I began to discover the subtle gripping power of self, 
My lifetime experience with self has only made me more aware of its destructive power and increased desire, and my increased desire to be free from its tyrannical control. Through the years, the destructive tyranny of self has been most evident in three ways. Self-promotion, self-protection, and self-indulgence. In a word, self-promotion is pride. Every time I've secretly envied another's recognition or success or, or quietly resented someone's lack of what I deem to be appropriate appreciation for my good efforts or kind consideration, self-promotion or pride loomed its ugly head. Even if I didn't act it out for all to see, it was still boring holes in my heart like a parasite. Self-protection is fear. How many? I really don't want to know. How many opportunities to love freely and live life fully were missed out of fear of pain or loss? How many times have I kept my arms crossed, my mouth shut, my, my head turned because my heart was, was clenched in a death grip to protect myself at the expense of another's relief or gain. As the saying goes, no one ever saved a life by running for cover. Of course, it's, it's much easier to be selfless, a selfless hero on an impulse when there's no time to think. It's in, in the day-to-day decisions that give us time to think and weigh the risks to self. Like choosing to understand before insisting we're understood. That separates the truly selfless from the fearful cowards. Lust. Sounds so carnal and dirty, but self-indulgence or lust isn't just a sexual thing. It's not to be strictly equated with desire. Desire itself is not the problem. It's the act of satisfying a desire or filling a void with the wrong thing or too much of a good thing and making the satisfaction of the desire our everything. It eyes not only another man's wife, but another slice of cake, anything immediate and superficial that parades as the real thing, the cure for our eternal spiritual need. Self is a tyrant to be deposed. Nothing but the liberating lordship of Jesus Christ has illuminated my, my personal life, my mind, to the, ta- to the tyranny of self. And no one but Jesus has given me any real hope or freedom to selflessly live We do well, at least I do, we do well at buying into convenience, at buying into self. It's sometimes, well, not sometimes, it is natural to, for self-preservation and self-protection and it's not what we want to do. But it happens sometimes just because we allow, we allow it or Or maybe sometimes 
we have a radiance of an encounter with God and then that kind of fades. But for whatever reason, I, I feel like we let these, these two things, convenience and self, carry the day, win the day. A quote for you. An eye-opening quote. It's not my quote. Our culture has affected our faith more than our faith has affected our culture. Our culture has affected our faith more than our faith has affected our culture. Do we believe there's a loving God who actively intervenes in our own personal lives now and not just back then? Not just with Elijah and Elijah and Elisha. Not just for Lazarus. Not just for Jer- uh, the dude's daughter. <laughs> Sorry, I forget his name. <laughs> there were several kids raised back to life. But with our faith, do we believe in the here and now? Do we believe in the here and now that God can and God does? I have a few examples. Friday night, I revisited a film based on a true story. Some of you may have watched it. Some of you may have read the books. Colton Burpo was a four-year-old son of a small-town Nebraska pastor who during an emergency surgery slips from consciousness and enters heaven. Yes, he enters heaven. He survives and he begins talking, being able to look down, seeing the doctor operate on him, seeing his dad in the chapel praying and and somewhat being mad at God. Colton said he, he met his miscarried sister whom no one had told him about. And his great-grandfather too, who died 30 years before Colton was born and at different times shared the impossible to know details with his dad or with his mom. Could you imagine being a mother whose your first child was miscarried? And then you have a little four-year-old son. Many of you have had four-year-olds. Mommy, I have two sisters. Or no, I think it went, Mommy, I have a sister. Well, yes, honey, you have a sister. And the sister's uh, a little bit younger than him. Well, no, Mommy, I have another sister. I met her in heaven. She didn't have a name, but she kept hugging me. And she said she knew me. And she said she died in your tummy. You know, when the Burpos started sharing their story, there was a lot of people who weren't believing. There's another story. I didn't ask him, but he's, um, if you haven't heard his story, he'll be willing to share it. He's shared it with me. He shared it a lot. Another story of how God 
actively intervenes in the here and the now in our lives personally. Have you heard the story of Ralph Miller? Have you heard his story of the encounter of the angel in his room? Church, God created the universe. God's power, God does what he does. If God wants to uh, bring a little boy to heaven to come back and share with us as a testimony, because maybe we need that. Because maybe we need to know that God is still actively working here and now and in our lives. God wants us to live. God wants to breathe life into us. God wants to bring us out of our graves. And in Lazarus's case, take off the grave clothes out of our dead places. Culture has affected our faith more than our faith has affected our culture. What would it look like if that was the reverse? What would it look like if, if the statement was, our faith has affected culture more than culture has affected our faith? Emily's going to need some help. Emily has something to, to hand out to each one of you. You can have it. You don't have to take it. Uh, you know, as I get older, I realize visiting the doctor for checkups becomes more and more of a regular thing for some, I guess. For others, maybe not. Today, I've just been impressed to work through something with you all. How are you doing spiritually? If you've been to the doctor and and you get checkups, right? At least all of us are supposed to have a yearly physical, I think. We we have checkups for physical, to make sure we're healthy. Do we ever have spiritual checkups? Here's a two-part checkup. Here, here the first 10, first 10 questions we're going to go through is a regular, and these, these papers that are going around, it's for you to take home. It's between you and the Lord. Regular checkup. Are you reading the Bible daily? If you adopted an annual reading plan this year, is it up to date? How are you doing? If not, take time this week. So on and so on. Number two, are you praying daily? Are you praying regularly and recurrently? Number three, how often have you shared the gospel this year? Is the gospel so striking to you that you cannot keep it to yourself? Have you reached beyond the church, church world to develop gospel-centered relationships for unbelievers? 
Number four, are you faithfully fighting sin in your life? Number five, what scriptures have you memorized this year? Do you echo the desire of the psalmist? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. Are you serving faithfully in a local church? Church is more than a place to attend. It is a family that loves us and provokes us to do good. Are you exhibiting the work of the flesh or the fruit of the spirit? Number, that was number seven. Number eight, who is walking more with God because of your influence this year? That is, are you making disciples? Have you purposefully pointed away from self to direct others to follow the Son of God? Number nine, what steps have you taken to spread the gospel to the nations? How would your family assess you as a family member and as a believer this year? And then, and then sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm matching this up with a, a, a health care checkup. Maybe you've experienced that, maybe you haven't. But sometimes in in an initial checkup, the doctor might, you know, find, might find some things wrong. We might have to do a more in-depth test or studies or or things like this. Here's some more in-depth, extensive questions for you, like the next 10 do you, having a, do you have a growing awareness of God's presence in your life? As we mature in our faith, we become more aware of God's activity in our lives and around the world. Number two, are you increasingly aware of your own sin? Number three, is there, is there something in God's word you are struggling to understand? Number four, are you pursuing God's plan for your life and how you fit into God's global purpose. Number five, are you growing in love for those who have been difficult for you to love? Number six, is there a discipline to your spiritual growth? We don't earn God's love, but in response to his love, we do seek to become like him. Without a plan, little growth will take place. Number seven, are you actively involved? This goes back to the other one in the local church. Number eight, is your lifestyle noticeably different from your peers who do not know Jesus? Number nine, is your relationship with God a source of great delight? And number 10, that extensive checkup. Do you live in an increasing gratitude because of what God has done for you? Church, uh, this may have been one of the more difficult sermons for me to prepare as I felt the Holy Spirit was, maybe this message might have just been for me this morning. How many in the church, capital C church across the world, or maybe we should just stick to here in the United States, how many would fail a spiritual checkup? 
Is this some root cause of the downward spiral of the church here in the United States? Our culture has affected our faith more than our faith has affected our culture. We've bought into convenience. We've bought into ourselves. What if? What if the church and the faith of the church began to affect culture? Began to affect the culture around us? I wonder what that would look like. I wonder if we would come to a place of believing that God is here with us. It's why we celebrate Christmas. Emmanuel. He's here. He's intervening. And I know I'm not saying that we need angel experiences where we don't need God to take us to heaven and bring us back. I'm thankful for that story though. You know, during that, that same time, maybe it wasn't during the same time, but they show in the video, uh, the video starts out with this girl painting over in another country. And before it starts the, the story in the movie, uh, the little girl has this eye painted. And by the end of the movie, they bring it back and this girl's finishing up the painting and, and, and at the end there, they, they share this little girl had a similar experience to Colton Burpo where she went to heaven. She went to heaven and she came back. She painted this picture of Jesus and it was on the news. And I was running on the news and his dad was watching it and uh, I don't know how much of the film they got to detail actually what happened, but uh, during all throughout the film, the dad, you know, Colton kept on saying he, he saw Jesus, he sat on Jesus's lap, and Colton, a four-year-old, really couldn't describe him. But when that little girl's painting of Jesus popped up on the screen, Colton said, that's him. That's Jesus. I'm so thankful that God is actively involved in the here and now, today. He cares about what's going on in my life. He cares about what's going on in your life. The power of God can overcome all, has overcome all. May our prayer be, church, that instead of the culture affecting our faith, may our faith in the living God begin to affect the culture around us. Let's pray. Gracious, loving God, I thank you and I praise you for this day. Lord God, Thank you for the work, your work in the world. I thank, I thank you that your active work wasn't just back then. It's here and now. You didn't just raise Lazarus from the dead. You didn't just 
raised this, this lucky man who fell on the bones of Elisha and all the other ones, Lord God. I thank you that you give us things in the here and now to demonstrate you're here working. You care about us. You care about your people. You love us. You want us to live. You want our faith to change the culture. Lord God, each and every one of us acknowledge we can't do it without you. Lord God, only by your Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Enable and empower each and every one of us, Lord God, I pray. We love you. We praise you. Pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And I'll leave you with these words. All-consuming. This is from Psalm 75. Lord, let me live my days sensing your nearness as I do now. The very air I breathe is teeming with your life. It floods my veins and tickles my skin. I'm intoxicated by your love. Wave after wave of your affection floods my being until I cannot contain my praise. It spills forth with untamed fervor. The fury of your love is all-consuming. I don't know why anyone would, would, would want to resist. If they would only stand in the, in the path of its intensity, they'd be swept up, never, to, never the same. Some boast that they have it all together, but I know that one brush with your love and their hearts would tremble. Your presence, unpredictable and astounding, makes one weak and another powerful. It crashes against our chest like an avalanche of love and, and knocks over the prideful, but causes the humble to increase in favor. Lord, all I want to do is lean into its torrent and let it carry me where it desires. To resist is pointless. You have conquered my heart. Prayers on fire. Thanks be to God. Thank you for being here today. Go in God's peace.